The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I'd like to invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and open up to Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, Matthew 16. It's on page 822 of a Bible in the rack if you need one. Uh, open up to Matthew chapter 16 as you're doing that. Um, you've, you've noticed that uh, we've been pausing the exposition in Genesis because throughout the month of November we've had uh, several different scheduling situations. We're doing largely uh, kind of one-off, standalone type of sermons, especially as we anticipate, as we mentioned, the Thanksgiving coming up and a Thanksgiving theme service and being on into Advent. So it gives us the opportunity, though, to to pause and provide particular reflections around themes. So at the end of October, uh, during the Reformation Sunday, we looked at some of the truths of the Reformation that come out of Scripture. Uh, and uh, we, we've heard other uh, sermons recently, and we appreciate uh, others bringing you God's Word. Uh, today, we come to Matthew 16 because a theme that we want to take advantage of considering as we move to the end of the year and anticipate a new year of ministry, Lord willing, uh, is we want to understand more about what the Bible says regarding church leadership, church authority, church office, church function, and how that all works and why it works the way that it does. So taking the opportunity to consider the theme of church office and church officers Uh, We're turning to Matthew 16 because in Matthew 16, Jesus addresses one of the most key and central realities for how the church understands its authority as given to them by Jesus Christ himself. So we'll be thinking about that this morning, and you see the sermon title, The Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, But as we prepare to go into that, I wonder if you remember uh, just a little over two months ago or about two months ago, the widely televised funeral service of Queen Elizabeth, uh, massively observed as grand affair. Uh, One of the things that you may have noticed, or if you saw newspaper pictures or things online of uh, depictions of it, is that Queen Elizabeth's coffin, the 70-year reigning monarch, had several very interesting uh, symbolic Uh, uh, realities placed upon uh, her casket with the the draped uh, veil and flag. Three symbols of authority. They were the sovereign's scepter, the rod of authority, and also the sovereign's orb, uh, two of the most iconic items associated with the royal family dating back to the 17th century. And there was also the crown of the monarch uh, with the cross adorned atop that crown symbolizing that all authority comes from God Himself, But those, those symbols of the monarchy were widely on display on top of the coffin of the deceased monarch on display during the services during Westminster Abbey. But very interestingly, as the casket is removed from the abbey and goes over to the more private burial chapel, each of those items have to be removed. And so the scepter and the orb and the crown are one at a time removed from the coffin and handed back to the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the head of the church under the monarch, received back to the church and to be kept there as the Church of England waits to crown the next monarch, uh, the next king. 
But this symbolism of these items of authority being placed upon the casket and then removed is symbolic of the fact that even the monarch's authority is a a borrowed authority. It's representative authority because the Church of England understands the divine right of monarchy, that the queen or king rules by divine right, and Elizabeth's divine right to rule was no longer upon her death. Now, as an American citizen, we might think one thing or another about the divine right of monarchy, constitutional republics being preferred over monarchies, but regardless about what you think about the symbols of monarchy and the symbolic reality of representative authority being possessed for a time and then being handed off, you have in that picture a wonderful reality of that very thing, of representative authority being possessed for a time that belongs ultimately to someone else, God himself, but that is given for a season to someone else to rule on God's own behalf. Now that is how the Church of England understands monarchy. Again, we're not monarchists ourselves, but that picture of representative authority is helpful for the illustration of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 16. So if you've got your copy of God's Word open in Matthew 16, we're going to be looking at Matthew 16 at verse 13 and following to verse 20 under the heading, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as we see one of the most important passages for the truth of representative authority in the church of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bible open, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures, and we'll hear it together. Heavenly Father, we pause now with your word open before us to say that we love the scriptures and we thank you for them. We thank you that you reveal yourself both generally in creation, but specifically here in your word, that we might know who you are and what you desire from us, your people. And so, Lord, we pray that as the Spirit so inspired these words, that that same Spirit might rest upon our minds to give us illumination and understanding might illuminate our hearts that we might believe by faith the word that you speak to us here. So come now, Lord, and speak to us in the authority of your word read and proclaimed that it might be received as your living word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word at Matthew 16 at verse 13. This is the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he run its truth in our hearts 
And uh, do keep your Bible open because we'll be looking there at Matthew 16, but we're also going to be jumping across the page to Matthew 18 uh, in just a moment. But uh, again, the sermon title, The Keys of the Kingdom, you look specifically to verse 19. Jesus makes reference of this thing called the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Thinking about the nature of the church and the nature of church leadership and the nature of church authority and how this whole church enterprise functions and how it does and why it does. That's what we're thinking about today uh, in this uh, very key passage. I'll also make mention to you that this passage... Uh, uh, severely divides different kinds of churches as they answer the question, to whom has Jesus committed the keys of the kingdom? But before we get into those details, we want to see this larger context of what Jesus is doing and what he is saying here, because Jesus is asking his disciples, uh, who is it that people say that I am? How is it that Jesus is being identified? He asked them there in verse 13, what have you heard other people say? And to that, the litany of responses incorrect as to who Jesus is. Well, they say, some say you're John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Some people say, well, Jesus, you're the same person. And other people say, well, you are a reincarnation of the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. And other people say Jeremiah or some other prophet. And Jesus is hearing from the disciples that there are many different kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. And that's still true today, isn't it? They might not say that Jesus is a reincarnation of Elijah, John the Baptist, uh, uh, Jeremiah, but people have different opinions about who Jesus is. He's a good teacher, he's a moral example, etc., these various things. But Jesus is interested not just in what other people say about him, but he specifically asks in verse 15, his own disciples, verse 15, he says to them, Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? What is it that you believe about me? Jesus asks the disciples, and the response is given. And in the context of the response, the correct response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16, Jesus adds a particular direction and a particular blessing to this correct identification of Jesus as the Christ. So we can say that where Jesus is identified correctly as the Christ, the Son of the living God, there Jesus speaks of a particular blessing. He says, where I am correctly identified, he says, verse 18, I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build a church, not just any church, my church. I'm going to build my church and gather people together where I am correctly identified as the Christ the Son of the living God. And where that people, where those people, where that gathering takes place, I am going to build a church and, verse 19, this is where we're focusing on in verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is talking about the church the gathering of the people of God who correctly identify that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, where He is going to build and bless His church and give to that church these, verse 19, keys. The keys of the kingdom. So what I want to do is stay in verse 19 and ask three questions. And hopefully you might be curious of these questions as well. One, what are these keys? 
What are the keys to the kingdom of heaven? And secondly, to whom is Jesus giving those keys? He says, here are the keys. But who is it that receives them? Who does Jesus give the keys to? And thirdly, why does any of it matter anyway? What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? To whom is Jesus giving those said keys? And so what of any of it? Those three questions. And hopefully you'll have interest to know the answer to those questions because they relate very much to what happens in the church. So first of all, let's ask, what are the keys of the kingdom? Now, uh, you probably know very well from secular culture, ancient history perhaps, that many different people believe that heaven and hell, whether they call it heaven and hell or some other form of afterlife, whatever form of ultimate destiny type views, many people believe that access to that afterlife is gained through gates that certain deities or angels hold keys to to grant passageway to people of the afterlife. There are many different views about this, but Greek mythology is especially famous of this. In ancient Greek mythology, it would be the ferryman Charon who ushers you across the river and Pluto who has a key to eternal life so that if you had the money to pay the ferryman Sharon for the toll access across the river, you could then go to Pluto who would open the key, uh, use the key and open the gate. Now that's ancient Greek mythology. That's also why in some cultures and especially some ethnicities, they believe that you must place two coins on the eyes of the deceased so they have their toll for the ferryman Sharon so they don't have to wander the shores of eternity forever. That's one view. What is oftentimes distinguished more as a Christian view, though, and oftentimes depicted oftentimes in Renaissance art, is the Apostle Peter, depicted in Renaissance paintings, always with a rope around his waist holding a key ring. And what is oftentimes perpetuated, this notion, jokes that the Apostle Peter is something like the gatekeeper of heaven, and you will oftentimes jokes you know, being told that such and such meets Peter at the pearly gates. So we have oftentimes these cultural relics or jokes that perpetuate this thought that in order to get into heaven, in order to gain access to the afterlife, you have to be admitted by the person who has the key. And oftentimes in the Christian tradition, we think that Peter is the one who has the keys. And the Bible doesn't say that, by the way, but those jokes perpetuate that notion of Peter as heaven's gatekeeper. So what does the Bible actually say, though, about these keys? Well, Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there is a connection between the key and the binding and loosing. You might say, well, you know, that's not really a, a verb that we use in our vernacular, but binding and loosing are traditional uh, Jewish terms for authoritative opening and closing. To bind or to loose is oftentimes how rabbis would explain that someone was placed under a ban. They were bound. They were bound. And when the ban was removed, the, the, that which they were bound to was loosed. So to be uh, binded or released from bondage is to be 
uh, binding and loosing. It's a typical referring to people who were either expelled from or uh, reinstated to the synagogue. They were either bound to the synagogue or loosed from the synagogue. And so Jesus is explaining that this key metaphor is what binds and looses because keys open and close. They lock and unlock, open and close. So Jesus is speaking of the keys of the kingdom of heaven to be the means by which heaven is bound or loosed, opened or closed to particular people. So the keys of the kingdom of heaven represent the authoritative opening and closing of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. Access granted or access denied by way of the keys of the kingdom according to Jesus' own authority. Again, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the keys relate to what happens on earth according to binding and loosing authoritative declarations that relate to the opening and closing of heaven by way of these keys. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. So who has them? Who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Now, the book of Revelation, John identifies correctly that Jesus holds the keys ultimately. But Jesus is here making reference to a reality of stewardship or temporary possession of the keys. Who is it that has the keys of the kingdom? And church history uh, and various interpretive traditions have three potential answers to this question. Who is it that holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, you largely have three options. Now, the first option is Peter. And that might seem obvious enough, right? Because it seems that Jesus is speaking to Peter. Peter answers the question. Jesus addresses Peter and says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first answer to the question of who holds the keys of the kingdom, if the answer is Peter, that would very much be in agreement with the Roman tradition, which has insisted for thousands of years that it is just at this moment, in particular redemptive history, that Jesus institutes Peter and those in Peter's apostolic succession to hold the office of the Holy Roman Pontiff, the Holy Father, the papacy. It is at this point that there are those who suggest that Jesus institutes the papacy with Peter as the first and all those in Peter's apostolic succession following him. That could be the case if Jesus was only speaking to Peter. But we know that he's not. Jesus is not only speaking to Peter here. He says in verse 15, when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Because he's asked, who do other people say that I am? Speaking in plural. All those people out there, who do those people out there say that I am? And the answers come back. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophets, etc. Jesus then turns around and asks again in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And the you in verse 15 is plural. You know, if Jesus was a southerner, he would say, who do y'all say that I am? It's a second person plural. It is a plural you. It's not you, Peter, by yourself. It's who do you say that I am speaking to all of his disciples. So when Peter answers in verse 16... 
you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The contest suggests that he is answering collectively on behalf of the group of the disciples, where Peter is essentially saying, Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the Christ. Jesus, you asked us, and we are responding back. This is what we believe. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not Peter's exclusive confession, but the corporate confession of the disciples. And so when Jesus says in response in verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the rock that Jesus is building the church on is not Peter as an individual. In fact, the ESV text gives you a helpful footnote there. You see that? In verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, you see the footnote, it shows you down that the, the language, Jesus is using a word play. I tell you that your name is Peter, and Peter's name in Greek means little stone. Peter, your name is Peter, but upon this rock. Peter, your name is like a rock. But upon this rock, this boulder, it's two different Greek words, Petros and Petras. It's two different words. Jesus is not saying that he's going to build his church on one man, namely the disciple Peter, but rather the rock that Jesus promises to build his church upon is not Peter, but the confession of the disciples. The rock that Jesus is building his church upon is the confession of Christ as the Messiah. The foundation of the church is not Peter, it's Jesus. And the true confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the only Messiah is the bedrock foundation of Jesus building his church so that wherever those who are gathered together to confess Christ, that's where the church is. This is the rock I will build my church on. The confession, the true confession of who I am. Jesus does not give the keys of the kingdom to just Peter. And he does not give the keys to just one person that's not Peter. He does not give the keys to just one person. So who does he give them to? Well, that was the first option. He said there were three. If he doesn't give them to just one person, Peter, the question is asked, well, does Jesus give the keys of the kingdom kind of like democratically to every Christian believer, corporately. Do all believers possess the keys? This produces a, a mindset of, of the church is what we call congregationalism, uh, which is a format of church government where there is bare democracy and majority rule, and whatever the people vote on, that's what they do. The, the idea that the keys of the kingdom go to everybody produces this kind of bare democracy. Now, I have a friend uh, who's a pastor of another church, and it's a downtown congregation. Uh, and, and he asked me, how many people have keys to your church? And I said, well, you know, maybe a few, but, you know, we got this keypad and, the, you know, the thing goes out and people, like, they stand at the door and say, what's the code? And I forgot. And I said, well, we don't really have physical keys. We don't really give out keys. We have a punch code. And he says, oh, that's interesting. And so I said, well, I don't, know, I don't know why you're asking me this question. So how many people in your church, you know, you ask the question just to get it asked back to you. How many people in your church have keys to your building? He said, probably 90% of my congregation has a physical key to our church building. And he said, it's a massive security issue for our downtown congregation 
When people are just kind of coming and going and there's no concern about whether the church is locked or unlocked, it's a trustee's nightmare, that concept of 90% of the church congregation having a key to the church. He says, it's a security nightmare in my church. Everybody has a key. Now, I say that because that notion that the keys of the kingdom to given to everyone, every individual Christian believer, produces this notion that it is just this bare democracy of a church. But do you know the church is not a bare democracy? And that sounds very jarring to us as uh, people who live in a representative republic, a democracy, especially because we just, you know, had an election. By the way, that's my only election comment all day. Um, We just had one. And did you know you didn't elect Jesus to be the king of this church? You can't, right? The church is not a democracy. Jesus reigns as sovereign king. You can think you're not voting for him, but he's not running for election. He is the sovereign. He rules, and we are his people. We are the people of his headship, his sovereign authority. We don't vote Jesus in. We cannot, by referendum, revoke his sovereign rule. And so it makes sense then that the government of the church doesn't follow a structure of bare democracy where whatever the people want, that's what happens, majority rule, where you could stir up a strife and next thing you know, we're going we're gonna to vote and totally do whatever we want just because the majority of people say so. That's a recipe for chaos. That's a recipe for an unsecure church building if that many people have a key to the, to the house, Right? So who holds the keys of the kingdom? Not one person. Not everybody democratically. But, this is the third option, all Christian believers but with representative leadership, in this case by the apostles, and in future generation by elders. So who holds the keys of the kingdom? If it's just one person... Uh, we call that episcopacy, top-down authority. Somebody's on top dictating, and that's the rule. If everybody has the keys of the kingdom, you've got bare democracy, it's called congregationalism. But in this third option, if all believers possess the keys but give representative leadership by elders and apostles, then you have what we call Presbyterianism, where Jesus in this instance, is entrusting the administrative authority of his spiritual household to the apostles. When Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, we understand that to be Jesus saying to the apostles, you have the authority of heaven given to you. By your apostolic authority, you have the keys of the kingdom. Jesus entrusts authority of his spiritual household, the church, to the apostles. The apostles have authority to order the affairs of the church. Right? They hold the key. They open and close. And Jesus says, there are things that you are going to do here on earth that pertain to the kingdom of heaven. That there is an earthly reality where you are ruling by representative authority, and I am in heaven, and the things that you bind and loose on the earth by way of my representative authority correlate to the spiritual reality of heaven itself where I reign as king. Jesus says to the apostles, you have the keys, you are regarded with the responsibility to make decisions and to exercise authority so that 
where faith is expressed and the confession of Christ is named, you will on earth open heaven to those who make the true confession. By your authority, you will open and shut, bind and loose the kingdom of heaven to those on earth according to their true confession. By faith in Jesus Christ through His gospel, heaven is opened. And the reality is conferred by the authority of church leaders, namely apostles and then elders. But by rejecting Jesus Christ, heaven is shut and that is conferred by apostles and elders. The keys are given to representative leaders on behalf of the people of God to lead them in their true confession. That's who holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So that's what the keys of the kingdom of heaven are. That's who holds them. And again... Different traditions would answer that question differently for particular reasons. But we believe that Jesus has entrusted it to His church officers. So why does any of that matter? Why does any of that matter? We need to take opportunity to talk about church office and church government and church structure, church authority, because you're in a church that's structured with order and authority. You've got to understand how this all works and why it works that way and why any of it matters. It matters for this reason. God has instituted the church, to be His uh, earthly kingdom of His heavenly reality. Heaven has come to earth. The kingdom of heaven is shed abroad. And where the church gathers, where the people are confessing the name of Christ, God has provided leadership there to bear the authority of Christ by representative rule so that the church wouldn't fall into anarchy so that the church wouldn't be subject to the abuse of just one person, God has instituted church office to hold the keys of the kingdom as representative of Jesus' own authority on earth, so that as He reigns from heaven, church leaders govern in His name on earth with His own authority. What am I saying? I'm saying something that may present a challenge to the way you may have often thought of church authority, even in this church. Because elders, or what we call the session, they're called a session because they sit, uh, from the Latin verb sessio, which means to sit. Christ sits in heaven and reigns from heaven on His throne. The session of elders is the plurality of church officers that gathers together to sit and mediate Christ's heavenly authority on earth to continue His mission and preach His Word. But elders are not just another board. The elders of the church are not just another committee of the church. They are the divine officers entrusted with the spiritual authority of Jesus Christ who reigns from heaven and mediates His authority through their earthly administration of His spiritual household, the church. Jesus did not leave His church in disorder, but gave for the orderly administration of it church office to hold the keys of the kingdom and administer them according to the Word, rightly so, that Christ might be proclaimed. Now, if you think about that, what Jesus is saying is actually quite intense because He says, these keys through which you administer my authority on earth, correlate to heavenly realities. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is literally saying that the administration of church authority correlates to the opening and closing of heaven according to faith in Jesus Christ that the apostles and elders administer. So, scan over to Matthew 18 here for, for a moment with me. Matthew 18 at verse 15, Jesus provides for the administration of authority in His church. The orderly administration of authority in His church. Matthew 18 at verse 15 uh, through verse 20 has many different applications, many important instructions, but there's a key one here that I just want to identify as it relates to this keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 15, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what Jesus is talking about here, this is Jesus' mediation strategy, right? You've got strife, conflict, and sin between fellow Christians. Here's how you're supposed to handle it. And just as a very quick aside, if Christian believers would live according to Jesus' instruction of Matthew 18, we would spare ourselves a lot of heartache, drama, and gossip. You got a problem with somebody? You go to them. Don't talk to somebody else about it. You go to them. What happens if they don't listen? What happens if they don't agree or don't understand that they've sinned against you? What then? Well, Jesus says, you take somebody else with you. Right? So Jesus is establishing something of a court of appeals, of strife between Christians. The first step is go to them. The second step is take somebody with you. What about the third step? The third step there, in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, this is going to sound familiar. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same thing from chapter 16. Because... There is given to you as a Christian believer a means of authority such that you can take conflict there and have a decision be rendered. Because when Jesus says, tell it to the church, He means the same thing that He means back in chapter 16 about those who hold the keys of the kingdom. Those who uh, rule in the church by representative divine authority and let them make a decision so they can bind or loose on earth and have it be correlated to the reality of heaven. So what that means is, is that in the church of Jesus Christ, rather than operating in chaos, disorder, and anarchy, Jesus has given order, and one of the key places that that is administered in a visible way is right there. If you're paying attention to what's happening, actually, because the session is the one who, in Jesus' own authority, is admitting or barring those to the table. If you come, you come because you are invited in Jesus' name. You have been admitted into the fellowship of the church. You have a true confession of Christ as Messiah. And under a, a spiritual authority, the church session says, you should come. You should come and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. But we also administer something that we call fencing, where we say, who should not come? And many of you have made comments to me at various times about having your ears perked up about this because down here at the table we say, here's who should come, but we also say, here's who should not come. And what's happening in that moment is what we call fencing the table 
where, according to the authority that Jesus has given church officers, the kingdom of heaven is being opened to everyone who comes to Christ, but access is closed off from those who refuse to come to Christ. So the kingdom of heaven is being opened and shut, bound or loosed according to Christ's command. Fencing the communion table is a temporary act of discipline or perhaps if someone who in Matthew 18 is taken through a process and refuses to repent, refuses to turn away from their own foolishness, the church officers can say to them, you are excommunicated from the table because of your refusal to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The kingdom of heaven is loosed and bound, open and shut, according to church authority. And you might say, that it just sounds very structural, and it sounds very hierarchical, and it sounds very authoritative, and it sounds very not very democratic. Well, Jesus is Lord, and He has instituted in His church an orderly structure of government where His authority is mediated by elders. So you could think to yourself, This is a sermon about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is also a large signpost to say this is why there is such a deep need for sober-minded, wise, and godly elders to mediate Christ's authority. Because they're not just getting together to vote on a few superfluous things about what kind of coffee we should drink in the fellowship hall but they are mediating Christ's authority who reigns from heaven as they sit here in the church as the people of God have called and recognized them to be their elders. A healthy session with qualified and competent elders is the diagnostic for the health of the church. When the session is weak, the church is weak. When the session is strong, the church can be strong. But if... Eldership, if holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven are seen lightly, then church authority and Christ's authority will be considered lightly as well. Elders are not a bunch of mini popes running around saying, Do whatever I say. They are servants and shepherds who mediate Christ's authority as he has entrusted to that particular office that role. Now, very quickly, there are other roles in the church. There are other offices to be held. We understand that. There are other committees to serve on. But it is particularly to this office that Christ has entrusted the keys of the kingdom. So you, the people of God, nominate and elect from among yourself your own elders. That is the distinguishing feature of Presbyterianism, that the representative rule of the people comes from among the people that they identify and acknowledge their own elders who are called and confirmed to that office to bear the authority of Jesus among them. So, when you are welcomed into church membership and an elder shakes your hand, the collection of the elders shake your hands, when the elders authorize the preaching of the gospel and when the elders call together the worship services and when the elders call for the administration of the sacraments, people of God, don't miss what's happening Heaven is being opened to you. 
They are opening heaven to you to say that by coming to Christ, by the true confession of Christ, heaven is open to you. The forgiveness of your sins, the cleansing of your conscience, and peace with God. You have access. And the elders of the church are pointing you in that direction to say, here is what life is really about. Here life is truly life. Christian believer, this is the rock. This is the purpose of the church. The confession of Christ as heaven is opened to us where Christ builds His church and entrusts to His church representative, authoritative authoritative structures according to the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that officers would rule in Christ's own authority. Not in their own, but in His. To say... The kingdom of heaven is opened to you. And to facilitate the worship and the preaching and the sacraments to say, people of God, Christ is all that He says He is for you as a Savior. Come and enjoy and come and identify yourself with and come in from the wilderness to say, we have a household of faith. We are the people of God. We believe together. Christ says, heaven is opened to you when you come. But we should also be aware that the church is not just any other secular institution. Its membership roster is not for the function of the country club or the Kiwanis club or generational namekeeping on a list. The church is the people of God who truly confess His name, who have heaven to open to them, who have by mediated authority eldership to serve them and open heaven to them. People of God, It's a wonderful thing to be a part of a Christian church and to have Jesus Christ say to you through the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments, heaven is yours. It's a beautiful thing to be a Christian and to be a part of a Christian church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for its truth and the way that it outlines and gives direction to us and how we operate and what we do and why we do it and for what reason we do it that way. Lord Jesus, I pray that You might help us all as Christians and church members to appreciate more deeply the order and structure of Your household and to delight ourselves in living within a household that is well-ordered and full of love and joy and peace. Lord, would you please bless our church? Would you please bless Edgington to the glory of your name? And for Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.